Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and this week on the show, I'm joined by Meg Linehan, Senior Editor at XL Sports. We'll talk about the pleasures and pitfalls of covering women's sports and whether the state of play of the National Women's Soccer League is strong enough to survive. But before we get to all of that, Meg is here to give us a preview of women's soccer at the upcoming Rio Olympics. I am very excited to have Meg Linehan joining me today. Meg is the senior editor at XL Sports, a website that is exclusively dedicated to covering women's sports year-round, and Meg primarily covers women's soccer, including both the national team and the National Women's Soccer League, or NWSL, and she also writes about women's hockey and the NWHL, plus the WNBA, and just for good measure, she throws in some sports photography in there too. So, Meg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a very exciting time in the women's soccer world as the Olympics are just a few short weeks away. Uh, Jill Ellis and the women's national team have recently announced the roster of the 18 players who will be traveling to Rio with the team. So, uh, Meg, for those who might be tuning in for the first time since last summer's World Cup, what are the biggest changes in the roster and, and who should people be watching out for? First of all, you know, the roster is a much smaller roster for Olympics. They're limited to 18 players. So that certainly caused some issues, I think, in roster selection. Um, I think the big one for most people is Heather O'Reilly getting left off for the, the field complement of players and becoming mm-hmm. an alternate um, Jill Ellis was forced to only take two goalkeepers. You're, of course, going to take Hope Solo. The second right. is Alyssa Nair instead of Ashlyn Harris, which, as expected, exploded the internet. And <laughs> um, for anyone who hasn't run into an Ashlyn Harris fan on Twitter yet, more power to you. <laughs> um, and, I mean, beyond that, you know, the funny thing is, is I wrote my entire analysis of the final 18 roster picks before the roster dropped because legitimately that's how confident I was that those were the selections that she was going to make. Her, it was that predictable. Yes, it's that predictable simply because players like Mallory Pugh, um, Crystal Dunn, Ali Long has really proved herself in the year between uh, Women's World Cup and the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um Lindsay Horan coming back from playing overseas at um, in Paris, coming back and coming over to the Thorns. Like, you know, a lot of this stuff has sort of been just a, a very slow progression in turning the team over. And I think the style of the team is finally starting to evolve in a way that a lot of us have been looking for for a very long time. Rather than playing that sort of direct style, we are now playing a game that is a little more technical. Mm-hmm. Um, and having those players like Mallory Pugh, um, Crystal Dunn is really my focal player uh, for the Olympics. I think Crystal Dunn could kind of be our, our secret weapon, um, not just for goal scoring, but also for assists and for playmaking abilities and just on the ball. I think that she is incredible. And, you know, she got a lot of press last summer for not making the World Cup roster. And she is on the Olympic roster, and it, it seems very silly now when you see what she is doing in the lead-up <laughs> to the Olympics that she did not go to the World Cup. So, so what was, for Crystal Dunn in particular, she's sort of a case study in, in like how, you know, each player fills a role on the team. You're not necessarily taking the 18 best players. Right. 
So what changed on the team so that there's now a spot for Crystal Dunn? I think part of what really opened up a spot for her is the fact that Lauren Holiday retired, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily like a direct link, but you then have that sort of, she tends to play, Crystal Dunn tends to be a more central, I mean, she can play central or wing. So part of that too is like, so you have this sort of spot centrally open up. We're starting to actually play now with a defensive midfielder, which hallelujah, this is finally <laughs> happening. We've needed to for a very long time. So now you're having these players like Ali Long come in who can actually mostly play as a defensive midfielder, or at least like sort of play that, that um, behind the attacking midfielders. Um, but Crystal Dunn has the versatility that I think Jill mm-hmm. Ellis is now especially looking for. And, you know, we've seen versatility come up um, in a lot of quotes from Jill Ellis. Kelly O'Hara gets called a, a versatile player a lot. But yeah. Crystal Dunn on the attacking side, I think, is probably one of the mer- most versatile players that we have. And I think that that's really, you know, she got that summer in NWSL to basically be like, <laughs> cool, you don't want to take me to the Olympics? I'm just going to, like, own this league. Like, I just am constantly impressed by her and like the the mental aspect of her game like she is I I think that she was not necessarily questioning herself after being left off of the roster but like it gives you this drive yeah and I, I think that as much as it was probably painful to not go to Canada on that roster like she is a better player because of it because it right. forced her to grow and you know we hear a lot about how failure can shape you. And I think that as much as it was probably personally painful for her, like she not only got through the mental aspect of it, but now is a stronger player because of it. I can like see the Nike commercial already. (laughs) (laughs) So who are the players that uh, are pretty recognizable that won't be on the squad this year because they retired or they're pregnant or (laughs) I know (laughs) who should should people not expect to see (laughs) Sydney LaRue. Um, No, Amy Rodriguez though, you know, yeah, we've had a a couple, although uh, Rodriguez has delivered her second child. So uh, Abby is gone as well. Um, There's no Lauren holiday who I probably missed the most out of all of them just because if she had ever really been truly played in position, Lord only knows what she would have done. I don't know. Like if you've been sort of even vaguely following the team, like I feel like it's a very, been a very sort of natural progression into this new roster. Um, yeah. And I think that the women's world cup roster skewed more to the veterans. I think mostly probably as this sort of like, this is your last shot as a, yeah. for a women's world cup. And not to say that the Olympics matter less, but I think finally adding that third star was such an important thing to this team that like now it's kind of like, okay, guys, we did it. And, you know, I think even on that conference call with Jill, she kind of acknowledged that where she was like, our goal was so just like win the world cup. Like I, you know, I had like less than a year with the roster and like there wasn't a lot of like looking at new faces and now we're actually finally able to like balance the short-term goals of having the Olympics win and also like figuring out what we're doing with this team through to the next cycle in France 2019 and that sort of thing. Which is an advantage of having consistency in your coaching staff as well. Yes. Although, you know, like someone was like, so now that you have this new contract and you're totally like set and she immediately started laughing and she's like, there's no job security in this job. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, please, <laughs> Basically don't jinx me. Thanks. <laughs> well, a little superstition in sports never hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, something that is uh, 
very constant from from the last squad to this one is the defensive line. Yes. The Department of Defense, yes. as Wikipedia so dubbed it. <laughs> um, so we're seeing the return of the back four. For the most part, though, you know, Allie Krieger is sort of mm. losing her starting spot. Like, it really does look, and it's been like this for a few months, that it will be Megan Klingenberg, Julie Johnston, Becky Sauerbrunn, and um, Kelly O'Hara as your, right. your starting back line. So Allie Krieger has now lost that starting spot, and it – you know, Jill Ellis got asked about that, and for her, it's really that Kelly is so versatile in the attacking sense, whereas right. Allie Krieger tends to be, you know, a more pure defender. Not to say that Kelly can't do the defending part of the job as well. Right. Um, but I mean, even the shift from having Christy Rampone to Becky Sauerbrunn has sort of been right. that, you know, and I, I think that the shift had already really happened by the 2015 Women's World Cup roster, but you were still taking Rampone to the tournament. Um, so now that Rampone has kind of basically been like, okay, guys, I'm cool. Like, it's all right. Like, you don't need to take me to this. I got it. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, she's still at Sky Blue FC and she's still playing. But um, I think that her sort of quietly stepping aside is definitely, um, like, that's a decision I can hugely respect because you're putting the team in front of, like, adding another stat to your record yeah um what should what should people be looking out for in in terms of the main challengers to the U.S. I mean they they managed to snag a pretty decent group I think out of theirs they're up against Colombia France and New Zealand and Mm -hmm. France is obviously going to be the major challenge I would say of those three teams Colombia especially is reeling right at the moment um one of their players just suffered like I think a broken shoulder or something like that Yoreli Rincon so she will be out, um, which is a major blow for them. Um, France obviously always continues to be sort of that challenge, but France is also like France is sort of my secret favorites where they try so hard and just fail <laughs> spectacularly at like the last possible moment. Like Sarah Buhadi, their goalkeeper, like she is fascinating to me because she is technically so great and then she makes the wildest decisions I've ever seen a goalkeeper make. So just letting in the most absolutely stupid goals. So Mm. France to me is one of the more enjoyable teams to watch because I'm just like, how are they going to mess this one up? I don't know. We'll find out. Um, Um, What about England and Japan who were both major contenders at last year's world cup? I neither will be playing. Oh, (laughs) Japan didn't even qualify. And uh, England also, like, yeah, Japan. How does that even happen? Uh, Japan lost to Australia in Asia qualifiers. So, yeah, Japan is going through a very large crisis in terms of. Wow. And I mean, so we saw them. They came over for the two-game series, right, for friendlies. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they are now, um, they, they fired their former coach, Norio Sasaki. Um, and they're basically changing the identity of the team. They're going younger and uh, they're starting to look scary again. And their youth teams, as always, have been very, very productive, whereas our youth teams are actually sort of falling apart right at the moment, like a little bit. So (laughs) (laughs) it should be very interesting to see, like, Japan bounce back. Like, I would be 1,000% shocked if they are not in France for the 2019 World Cup. But, you know, this tournament is going to be very interesting because – and I cannot speak to the stat 100%, but I don't think that one of the teams who has been in the final for the Women's World Cup has been, like, not even qualified 
for the next year's Olympics. Like, I don't think that's ever happened before. So Japan is definitely having its own, like, fun little struggle. Like, imploding, yeah. sounds like. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're already, like, if they did implode, like, it was a very short one. And now they're already kind of like, yeah. okay, we're settling it. And, yeah. So what's the story with England? What happened there? Yeah, I mean, England not making it. It's just, I think the the fact that there are so the way that the qualifiers for Olympics work, like you're so limited in how many teams come from each region that mm. it's, it's a very tough. So like Germany and France, I think we're always going to go. And then the third one from that is Sweden. Mm-hmm. So like it's to advance out of Europe is not like an easy task. And I think that England is certainly like a capable team, but I also don't know if they're necessarily like, a top three in Europe team yet at hmm. this point. And, you know, Mark Sampson is a really great coach, and I think that he has changed things up considerably after the departure of Hope Powell. But uh, I also just don't think that they're, like, 100% there yet. So, hmm. Well, all right, so back to the teams that will be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you had to put your bets down now, who are the four teams that you see getting to the semis? Ooh, well, that's tough just because of the way that, like, the seeds happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think U.S. is certainly a favorite. Um, Germany would definitely be a pretty solid pick. Like, I can see Australia is, like, my dark horse of this tournament <laughs> for sure. Just because Australia, like, they've been – so sunny there, though. Yeah, they've been working <laughs> on some stuff. Like, I mean, and they're still a very young team, but, like – I don't know if they're they're there yet, but like by the next cycle, like they're gonna be a major threat for France twenty nineteen. I think, like they hmm. are really they're figuring it out and they're starting to really put the resources in and they're realizing, like we can do some major damage on a world stage, and I hmm. think that they have the potential in one of these tournaments where like the group stage aside, like after that where it like goes into the knockout stages, like it's one game they can win one game. Yeah. So they could knock off a very major team in this case. So. All right. So U.S., Germany, Australia, who's your fourth? I mean, I, I would have to probably pick France. I don't know if the way that the tournament is set up, that all four of those teams would be able to make it into that final four. Those would be my yeah. top four teams in terms of, like, chance to win it all. Um, I just don't think, and it's really unfortunate for Brazil, you know, they're the host country, but historically they have just not given a shit about their women's team. And it's awful because, you know, they're very talented and, you know, Marta is probably the purest soccer talent the world will see. Um, and you know, I just, I don't know if they have the, the capacity to put it all together, even, with the home field advantage and all that kind of thing. And their group is probably one of, I don't want to say like, I don't want to say it's the easiest one, but it's Brazil, China, South Africa, and Sweden. So Mm -hmm. they don't have like necessarily that other like true powerhouse nation in their group. So I, I feel like Brazil should get pretty far, but I also just don't think that they have the capability to like polish off Germany or polish off the U.S. in a game like that. Well, I feel like we could do a whole nother episode just about the state of international women's soccer and or issues related to FIFA. (laughs) FIFA is always its own thing, yes. Yeah, don't you just love them? 
unless you have any other uh, last comments on on Rio or the Olympics or the national team and, and what we should be looking forward to. Right at the moment, this is certainly the U.S.'s tournament to lose. I think the pressure is a lot less for this one. Um, The World Cup clearly had the, you know, like the symbol of winning the World Cup and putting that third star on, like it was a very heavy thing. And now like this is the the chance of can a team win the World Cup and then win the Olympic gold medal in back-to-back years. Like that's never been done. So like it's a nice challenge for them, but it's not like we have to win this World Cup. Like we are the best in the world. How do we keep losing this tournament? Right. So. Well, I mean, the Olympics are always funny because on the one hand, it's an international stage, but on the other hand, there are like 60 other sports going on simultaneously. (laughs) But yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I feel better informed after this lovely preview that you've provided, and I can't wait to see if your predictions come true. storyline that we should address heading into the Olympics is the so-called issue of equal pay for equal play. As many listeners may know, the U.S. women's national soccer team filed a wage discrimination complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. This was back in March, alleging that U.S. soccer, which is the governing organization of both the men's and the women's side, underpays the women in comparison to the men. And I won't get into all of the nitty-gritty here, except to say that as things stand, the women's national team will need to look toward its next collective bargaining agreement to see any changes, which means that right now they are in full-on publicity campaign mode. There is also, I don't know how much people recognize this, but there's also a very intertwined relationship between U.S. soccer and the NWSL primarily of which is that U.S. soccer uh, subsidizes the salaries of the national team players for when they play for their club teams. So as this pay equality battle goes on, I imagine that given the Olympics are very, you know, heightened time of attention um, for this conversation, what will be the implications for the NWSL in terms of how pay equality does or does not work out for the national team. Right. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of trickle down from U.S. soccer pay equality stuff to NWSL until very recently. Um, Hope Solo just posted her entire blog post about NWSL playing conditions. Uh, The players put their, like, equal pay, equal play t-shirt up for sale on, like, Mm. Teespring or somewhere similar. And the proceeds from that shirt are actually going to, like, an NWSL player fund. So the awareness now is starting to at least be a little more inclusive. At first, like, I remember the day when the players announced their complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Mm-hmm. And people were like, well, how does this affect the NWSL? And their lawyer was like, I don't really know yet. <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, we're going to figure that out, I guess. So, you know, and part of the what is so hard in trying to explain this issue in a very succinct sort of fashion is that the pay structure for the U S women's national team is so different than the U S men's national team where they do have this sort of salaried paying job with U S soccer. Whereas with the U S men, it's like legitimately per appearance. Yeah. So the fact that they are subsidized for their appearance in national women's soccer league, like and we're starting to see it now, like we had a lot of reporting this week at Excel about, NWSL and sort of the future of the league thanks to this one undersized field in western New York which has now kind of 
opened up a whole line of questioning about standards and, you know, bringing back up player wages and now potentially a player union seems to be like back on the table for NWSL. But, you know, in the long run, we still don't really know how this is going to affect the NWSL. And it's a much like, it's not really a sexy issue, but it's a much sexier issue for the U.S. (laughs) women's national team than it is for NWSL because the profile is so much higher. So right. then when you're actually talking about one of these players who's making the minimum wage of like $7,000 a season, like the name recognition is not there and you can't expect right. it to be unless you're a real NWSL diehard. So if someone is going to go like, yeah, Carly Lloyd should be making more money, like they, you have to teach them that it's not just like, yeah, Carly Lloyd should be making more money, but also the playing conditions and wages in NWSL need to be improved and need to be like a living wage. I mean, we, we ran a piece with a lot of stakeholders this week. Um, and yeah. Randy Waldrum, who is coach of the Houston Dash, was like, we need to be paying these players because otherwise, like, they just, you know, they disappear. Like, it's also not fair to the players either, where it's like you have to prioritize playing for the national team, playing for your club team, and then also building your own personal brand so you actually maybe have money to eat food. Right, to you get know? a sponsorship deal, to get a yeah. commercial. and, like, that's right. how you're going to – and you only have this sort of limited amount of time in which you are right. physically able to, like, play soccer. So you're right. trying to, like, balance these sort of three primary functions of your job. Right. And if that commercial with Visa is going to pay you, like, five times what you're going to make in the NWSL in the entire season, I would right. be picking that Visa commercial. <laughs> I think any reasonable human being would be picking that Visa commercial. Right, but I think it's an interesting balance. It'll be interesting to see, at least, once the U.S. soccer pay equality issue is hopefully resolved, it will be interesting to see what types of roles the players take when they go back to their club mm-hmm. teams right. in terms of uh, you know, trying to influence other players to form a players' union, right. uh, trying to use whatever leverage they have to get better, you know, right. uh, salaries get better field conditions get better publicity and marketing and and television deals you know like where if at all will they look toward next yes yes and i mean i I think we're starting to see that with you know what hope solo did this week of and part of that too is like a selfish thing because she's got to play on those same fields and all that so like she has to live through those conditions as well but they those players especially on the national team have that platform and can say, look, we're fighting this battle, but also this battle needs more attention. All right, so welcome back. Uh, I'm still with Meg Linehan, and we are discussing uh, women's sports and women's soccer in particular. Why don't you tell us a little bit how you got interested in sports and when you decided to make a career out of covering women's sports? Okay, so I think like a lot of people my age, uh, 1999 was a very important year for me, the Women's World Cup. Uh, I was already playing youth soccer, but I, I remember like I was assembling binders of like <laughs> as a small child to be like, I need to know everything. Oh, wow. Players, like, I was a very, like, sort of 
gung-ho organized child like I did this for Super Bowls too apparently I have like very little memory of this but that <laughs> just was, like, the binders is like, evidence that it happened yeah, I mean like he's like you would cut out articles out of it I was like all right cool like sure like at least I was very prepared and now like I'm like well this makes so much more sense <laughs> right <laughs> so 1999 happened and then legitimately a year later you know they tried to start the first women's professional league in the United right. States WUSA and for some odd reason, they were like, yeah, a 15-year-old would be great as an intern. And I worked in the press box, basically. That's the, amazing. This was before Twitter. So legitimately, my job the first summer of this league was to do live updates from the games in HTML and yes. upload them to the Boston Breakers website. Oh, and like basically live tweet the game, but you would just do like, you know, Christine Lilly has the ball, dot, 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 and then upload <laughs> it. <laughs> That's amazing. So like that was like a live feed. Exactly. That was the, you know, pretty much first taste of it as a 15 year old. And like, I still have my, my Boston Breakers official Adidas polo jerseys from the first year of the league and all of that kind of stuff. So oh, remember the jerseys back then? Oh, they were like I I actually had, cases. Oh, they were giant. Well, first of all, they were giant. Like the yeah. Breakers one especially, it had like this giant collar. Yes. And like a V-neck sort of thing going on. I actually yeah. like I mean, when you post the show, I can post a photo of, I have a Christine Lilly jersey that she actually signed for me more recently because I found it again and was like, oh my God, I have to wait for her to show up at a Breakers oh game God. again and yes. have her sign it for me. But I mean, they're giant and they're yeah, so weird they're looking. Huge. Also, so, shout out to Christine Lilly because I, as the listeners know, also grew up in the Boston area. And she was everywhere. Like, you could not play girls' youth soccer in Massachusetts without meeting Christine Lilly. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's what – I mean, I just wonder how many small kids they, you know, manage to interact with and just, like, sort of quietly change their lives. And they – I'm sure they sort of had, like, that sort of sense of it. But then I think yeah. about just all of the meet and greets that they had to do back in the day and, like, this whole generation now that is, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Yes. That is now like the fan base for women's yes. soccer. And it's because they were so accessible in that time period. Before we move on. So uh, there's a big difference between being a fan of sports or, or a player and actually making a career out of that. Yes. So how did you get into sports journalism and, and when did that moment really coalesce for you? So... You know, I went down to school in D.C. at American University. I majored in literature, which is vaguely helpful in this field because it at least teaches you how to write. Came back up here uh, a couple of years after school. I used to work at Borders. Borders imploded. Oh, R.I.P. Borders. Yes, definitely. And came back up here, and then it was the 2011 Women's World Cup. And I had never, like, fully gotten out of soccer, but I wasn't as involved and, you know, super got into the 2011 World Cup. And I just remember, like, that was when I really started reading The Equalizer, mm -hmm. which is a, a website that is solely for women's soccer. And then Jeff Kasuf, who was running the site, and he had posted this thing, like, we need people in markets for women's professional soccer. So if huh. you have any interest send me an email and Boston was one of them. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to send this email. And it started with just taking photos. And then I started to write. And then like in under a year, I 
was probably like right in the middle of it with um, Jeff and Dan Loetta, who is now managing editor of the site. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was really how I got back into it and started writing again. And, you know, my first press credential for U.S. soccer was with the Equalizer and not a paying gig, but something that really gave me a place to like learn how to do it. Yeah. And then, you know, ended up sort of freelancing for a while as well. And then the the whole thing with Excel Sports, which is the website that I currently work for, came together, which is a full-time paying job, which is very Amazing. rare yeah. in women's sports. And, yeah. um, you know, it's pretty much the dream job. So that was really where that leap finally happened. Well, so I'm curious, you know, it seems like when I talk to different journalists and the different sports that they cover, that there seems to be a little bit of a lower barrier to entry for women's sports. Mm-hmm. And so, but do you think that that's related to, this is going to come out sounding wrong, like the quality <laughs> of women's sports coverage, meaning that like sites like Excel Sports are kind of the exception to the rule of most women's sports coverage that's high profile at least seems to be more like fluff pieces, right. you know, player pieces, profiles, that sort of thing. Right. It's not the same level of like detail and grind as men's sports. Right. I mean, and we have a lot of conversations about this from, so within Excel, we have, uh, you know, it's still a fairly small editorial staff, but the two people who are really trying to figure out, you know, how we put this thing together are, you know, I'm senior editor and then I report to Howard Magdal who is editorial director of the site. And then we have our, our business side and the CEO, Kim Donaldson, who is great and, you know, really has the vision for the site and her partner, Kat Osborne. Like, you know, we're trying to figure out how we basically cover women's sports on the, like, sort of mind-blowing concept that they are sports, <laughs> right? Like, exactly. Yeah. you know, that, that there are multiple stories happening and that you can have that sort of fluff level because, like, I, I do have, like, slightly regular feature called the world of women's sports dogs on Instagram. Like there's a place for all of it. Right. Right. But the problem is right at the moment, we don't have that sort of the actual grind and nitty gritty that we get in, in men's sports. Like, you know, you think about Steph Curry and the golden state warriors, every single move he makes has an article about it. Yeah. But that doesn't happen on the women's sports side. Like, you know, I, I hate to use her as an example because I don't think it's fair to her, but like there's basically an entire cottage industry around reporting what Sydney LaRue, who is mm-hmm. uh, a player for the U.S. Women's National Team and is currently out uh, as she is pregnant, like what she does on social media. Yeah. Like she generates more articles, I think, on that than anything that she has done on the field. And it's right. just because she is an interesting person and, you know, uses social media well. But right. she gets more stories about what she does on Instagram than what she does on the field. Which is interesting because on the one hand, you need high profile players who draw interest from a general audience and not just like women's soccer junkies. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you're right. It's like, you know, I've read so much about just her pregnancy that doesn't even mention like anything about, okay, how does a team treat a pregnancy leave? How does that player like come back into the fold? What are the issues surrounding, you know, like maternity leave policies or like, I just see so many opportunities to have a discussion beyond like, oh my God, she's wearing a bikini and she's pregnant. I know. know. (laughs) 
And I mean, and that's just even like besides what you're saying about the amount of like hard soccer news and profiling of a player. You know, so it's a, it's a delicate thing. And I think that we have a lot of opportunities and which is why I'm so excited about Excel and what we can do because there's just so many stories that aren't getting told and we have such a chance to be like, this is how you do it. And there is a way to make money doing this because this is exactly what is already happening on the men's side. The troubling thing is actually just getting the chance to say, let me try this is so tough, which is why having Excel started by women who understand like the mission statement of what we need to do is so important. Yeah. Well, so something that I've thought about a lot, um, I had a guest on this show a couple episodes back named Ian Levy, and he does a lot of basketball analytics works for a couple of different websites. Right. And uh, he he and I had a lengthy discussion about the, the data gap between, in basketball in particular, mm-hmm. the men's and women's game, and especially at the college level, that there's so much information available for the men's side and the women's side is is pretty severely lacking. Yes. And that just this availability of information itself makes up its own stories because you can dig back into data, you can go back through historical stuff, you can make comparisons, you can look at things from different angles. So I'm wondering kind of what are the challenges to covering women's sports from like a information market kind of angle. Yeah, I mean, and women's soccer and women's hockey is, I mean, women's basketball has a really bad gap. Women's soccer and, and women's hockey are just, I mean, it's laughable. It's laughable yeah. at the lack of information that we have. Um, and it's its not just a lack of information, it's a lack of even the little bit of information that we do have being accessible. Yeah. And being fan-friendly and media-friendly. So... You know, for for soccer, we have Opta, which is this sort of, you know, stats company that does stuff on the men's side and MLS has access to it and all that kind of stuff. So you get like heat maps and number of touches and attempted passes. And, you know, they can do all these nice, fancy charts and graphs and all this. And there's none of that for NWSL. Like you're lucky if you have pass completion, which you don't at all. Right. So... What happens is you can't necessarily make sort of stat-driven decisions about a team. If you're watching them 100% every game, you might know these things, but you can't also like point to something and say, like, right. the numbers don't lie, right? which drives a lot of stories on the men's side. So, again, like we're talking about sort of the structure of coverage of women's sports where you have this sort of, you know, the nitty-gritty of the sport, you have the fluff stuff, but then there's this other angle where you have like the real technical driven stat article. Yeah. And that's what's missing. And you, you can't necessarily point to it. And what's nice is you have a lot of fans who are trying to provide that stuff. And you have a few, like there are a few people in women's professional soccer, like Chad Murphy, who is doing it on his own, unpaid, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Like he's probably writing some stats based articles. Um, we've had one about the Boston breakers at Excel, if they were unlucky, where he's looking at XG, like expected shots and things of that nature. But, you know, this is a ton of work and there are systems out there that exist to capture already, but because they're expensive. Yeah. Again, that's where the gap is. Yeah. I also think kind of from a broader angle, 
you know, in terms of like highlight reels or showing off play. I think I was reading on Excel that the 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 television deals for the NWSL yes. is like they're going to play they're going to broadcast three games in September, three regular season games yep. in September and, and then, then the, the playoffs. playoffs. Yep. And otherwise you're left with like YouTube streams yep. that may or may not be <laughs> up and running. And even if they are like the camera angles are maybe like two or three. Right. You know, two usually is is pretty standard. Sometimes they have three or, you know, it could be. And I I feel bad for sort of messing with Western New York after the week that they've had between, you know, the undersized field and um, Paul Riley getting suspended and fined. But their broadcast frequently looks like a VHS cassette out of 1989. (laughs) So you know, there are standards still and, and I've written about this and, um, we've had some other articles about this, but you know, there was a standards issue with the streams and, and last year, you know, they don't necessarily always have a hundred percent control over the facilities that they use in NWSL. So I know that they were having Wi-Fi problems at Washington, I want to say last season and, and couldn't stream a couple of games. And that's not necessarily within the team's control, but again, like it's sort of this overall, money and standards problem that the league is having. So, I mean, I had started to do vines, right, of U.S. soccer highlights and stuff like that. So if someone scores a goal, if there's, like, a really close miss or a nice defensive play, like, I tend to just – I'm legitimately holding my phone up to my television, (laughs) right, and just recording and then putting it on Twitter. But the thing is, it's immediate, and it's a six-second clip, and it's there. And people right. can share it. And they right. have taken off so crazily. It's insane. Like, if we yeah. did this in, like, a more legitimate fashion than <laughs> me, like, a normal human who just is, like, going, I'm just going to hold my phone up. Like, <laughs> just think about how much more viral they could go. Like, I, I took a vine of Tobin Heath, like, nutmegging someone, and it got, like, a million views in under a day. Whoa. Right. The See, and, and like there. you say something like that, and it's like how how this is this is my biggest kind of chafing point with the men's and women's sports discussion. There there is demand there, like if you build it, right? Right. right. And so the point is that men's sports have like a huge cultural leap ahead of women's sports. They have so much technicality, they have billions of dollars invested in Every single facet of the industry. Mm-hmm. I think that the argument that like, oh, well, there's not a demand for women's sports. It's like, well, women's sports don't exist in a vacuum. Like they're yes. not on. That's my favorite fight. thing to say. <laughs> it's my favorite Because as soon as you use the words like, well, the market, right. you know, is going to decide what's strong and like what who you're going to pay money to go see. But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, right. it just doesn't. And to say that well, if women's sports were better, they would have more people watching. No, because culturally we have not been trained to appreciate women's sports. Yeah. So you can't just say, well, the market's going to decide what's going to survive or not because it's it's in this unfair market. Right. <laughs> As so if we're all like such discerning consumers <laughs> that we're not just being like fed what to like anyway. <laughs> I know. I know. I just... Uh... As soon as someone tries to get into that argument with me on Twitter, I'm like, please go away because I don't have patience for this. Like, I just, <laughs> and I mean, what I, what I do really like is, you know, you have places like the Tucker Center um, out of Minnesota, which is um, 
really focused on women's sports and all that kind of stuff. And they have this campaign called here's proof. Mm -hmm. Um, so like they have the hashtag here's proof and all that kind of stuff. And they'll put together infographics where it shows, you know, like for instance, so they tape delayed the, the women's NCAA final for ice hockey by a week and they aired it on Easter (gasps) Sunday. Yes. I remember this. Okay. So I was actually at that final. It was an incredible game. They live streamed it, and then they they tape delayed it on actual broadcast for a week, and it still got more ratings tape delayed by a week than the men's final the year before had. Ah, oh, man! Right. So there is certainly like there there are data points in here that are certainly encouraging. It's just you're you're working against unfair competition because yeah. you don't have the resources, and and this is what you know we saw happening in the in the NWSL this week where the league is working with a much smaller deck pretty much across the board yeah uh, a worse television deal YouTube streams um, the standards aren't necessarily a hundred percent there player wages aren't a hundred percent there you know there's a lot of things yeah. happening across the league you're you're playing with a, a much harder deck, you're going up against things that are so polished and so put together and have existed for years. And so much of like what being a fan is too, is like passing sports fandom down. Like it's a tradition, right? Like there's an unfair advantage there and you don't necessarily, you don't have, so you don't have the tradition of sports fandom with women's professional soccer. You don't have the professionalism. You don't have the resources. And then we're expecting this league to be like a thriving thing right off the bat. Well, so something I want to ask, because I think you and I and other guests I've had, you know, have laid out some of the larger structural problems of women's sports, have discussed some of the more specific problems, yet there is this cohort of people in each league who are working so hard to make it happen and make it work, and people like yourself who are covering it and dedicating their livelihoods to it. And um, Kate Samini is a reporter who covers the NWHL. Mm -hmm. And I met her last year and she ended up um, being on the podcast. And she mentioned that she took a pay cut to cover the NWHL because she really believes in it. Right. I imagine that that's a a common thread for many people working in women's sports, that there's some sort of trade-off that they make. Right. So what for you have been the trade-offs, if any, that you've made to cover women's sports? I mean, until Excel, I was basically losing money 100% of the time. Um, I was freelancing for Vice Sports a little bit, and that was certainly sort of a a paying thing, but Mm -hmm. uh, freelancing usually does not cover 100% of the bills. Like, all of the sports photography I was doing for NWHL was 100% out of pocket. So any away games that I went to, um, even, you know, home games, like all of the gas all of that out of pocket. I flipped to Buffalo for the all-star game out of pocket. Uh, women's soccer before that, you know, traveling to games, traveling to NWSL final, all of that sort of stuff out of pocket. And basically it was balancing the previous day job that I had and using that to fund basically women's sports as like the outside thing. So it was just you know, how much time can you spend still doing your day job and having a life and then adding this extra thing in that isn't paying you, but you love it. Right. So I actually <laughs> had to step away for a little while because I was like, I'm just burning myself out. I'm not making any money. 
and I still want to keep doing this, but I need to do it in a way that makes a lot more sense for my life. And so that way I have one because, you know, by the end of my time at Equalizer, it was basically like having a second full-time job that didn't pay me. Yeah. And on top of that, and this is the thing, like, I don't ever want to sound like I'm like whining about it, but you have, um, a, a fan base that is very attentive and, you know, will certainly support you in, in covering things, but also can be kind of aggressive. And, mm. you know, for me as a photographer, frequently does not respect copyright law in any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. So you're, yeah. you know, like I've, I've invested my own money into camera equipment, into gas, into travel. And then I post photos basically as, you know, it's something that I like to do. It's something that I really like the players to have because there's not really a photographer at women's hockey games. Like they know that I'm going to be taking photos of them. So that way they have them and their family has them. And then you have fans online who are, you know, like removing my watermark, not giving me credit. Like, yeah. And part of it too is like, even if it's just like the chance of getting work off of it, you're removing that chance. So there's, you know, there's definitely been some sacrifices and I'm, I'm again, super grateful for what Excel is doing that we're, you know, paying our freelancers and we have a full-time staff and that is, you know, we're trying to make it work and we're trying to prove that it can work. Well, so let me turn the question around because there's something in this for you that's keeping you in women's sports Mm -hmm. as opposed to pursuing something more lucrative. Mm -hmm. So what makes you hopeful about the women's sports that you cover? I mean, I think just the fact that we have leagues right at the moment in all of these sports, I think that all of them, um, even in women's hockey are growing in some fashion and, you know, women's hockey is certainly, I think sort of the most sort of unsettled still at this point Mm -hmm. in time, but Women's soccer, compared to, you know, five years ago or, you know, even post-2011 World Cup, like, we're in such a much stronger position. Um, The national team, like, think about where you are starting to see Carly Lloyd or Alex Morgan. Like, they're really – the household name factor, I think, is much higher now for women's soccer and women's basketball. Like, I think Maya Moore and players like Elena Deladon and Brianna Stewart coming into the league this year, like – yeah. We're starting to get that sort of visibility. So, you know, overall I'm hopeful, but I, I think the thing that I'm most invested in is just continuing to grow the coverage of women's sports and trying to prove that you can cover them as sports and that it is a valid thing and people will read it and visit your site and respect what you're trying to do. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's like one of the aggravating things about women's sports is like you have to believe in it in order to, in order to, you know, do it. Right. But that, you know, that's not like a requirement anywhere else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For everywhere else, it can just be like a job. Right. And here it's, do you believe in it? Do you want to get paid less? Cool. (laughs) All right. Come on in. So. Right. Right. But I mean, to be fair, then that that typically gives you a lot of people who are very passionate. You know, this is kind of the same argument that players in NWSL are having, like, oh, how beautiful it is to be a pioneer in 2016. Like, we're all still sort of, like, in that, like, <laughs> right, you know, right. the pay sucks. <laughs> right. The, the benefits suck. But at the end of the day, like, you're building something. So it's yeah. just a matter of can you afford 
to help build it. So. Although, you know, I will say that uh, Carly Lloyd was profiled in, I think it was ESPN the magazine. Mm-hmm. And there was this, like, shift in tone where she said, like, my 15 minutes of fame aren't going to be over. I'm tired of being told to be grateful. Right. Yes. We work yeah. hard. We play hard. We win. And mm-hmm. yes, you should be watching. Yes. And I was just like, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Like, I think women's sports needs an attitude readjustment where it is mm-hmm. less of the I'm just going to be grateful and we need some more of the fuck you. Like, we need to have that sort of attitude like, Fuck you if you're not watching. Are you kidding right. me? Like, look at what's happening in here. Pay attention. Right. right. And we, like, and part of it, too, is, and, and this is, I think, probably more, well, no, it's across the board. There aren't really a lot of villains in women's sports. We have a couple, right? But there's no, yeah. like, Kobe Bryant who's out there and, like, totally a jerk 100% of the time, but people still, like, respect that. Like, there's right. no, there's no attitude still. Like, everybody's, like, trying to play nice because they want eyeballs on their sport. Whereas if you just played the sport, I feel like maybe people would pay more attention to it because it becomes just sort of this thing that we expect. Whereas now we're, like, presenting it as this, like, pay attention to us, please. Come on, you can do it. And and instead it should be like, no, screw you, pay attention. Yeah, but I think the personality has always been linked to sports. And so, like... You know, the big personalities get the big draw. Yeah. I see, like, I see the symbiotic relationship between sort of, like, outsized egos and, like, success in sports. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think we have a few, like, think about what Megan Rapinoe has done, like, as a personality. mm -hmm. Like, I think we're starting to get there. And, you know, when I think about the 99ers, like, I, I think the common accepted image of them was, like, sort of the ponytail and you know having the sort of clean cut American woman image and it's getting a lot more diverse yeah Um, but I I think that women women athletes are a little afraid to sort of be bigger than life because is there a place for that I don't know if we figured that that out I think the interesting thing about women's sports versus men's sports is that like we still don't have an an out gay male athlete in a major franchise Mm -hmm. in the same way that you have like Megan Rapinoe, Abby Wambach, Brittany Griner, you know, like there's a handful of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, that is kind of a testament to like where women's sports can push boundaries. Or think about what WNBA has been doing this week with Black Lives Matter and and all that sort of thing. Um, They've been very vocal about you know, wearing warm-up shirts and calling press conferences. Like, I, I feel like women's sports are a little less afraid to be overtly political. Because um, women's sports are inherently yes, political. exactly. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, MLS has Robbie Rogers, like, not to overlook him, but, you know, we're still waiting for, you know, the first MLB, NFL, NHL, right. NBA. NBA. Well, um, I guess NBA we had, except yeah. then he didn't really get picked up for another team. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, an and, active, you know, like, an Mike, active player. Yeah. You know, and you had Michael Sam, who was sort of hailed as that like first big hope, and um, yeah, but then he didn't make the team I either. I know. I mean, not to not to, you know, like take away from what these players are doing right. by coming out, right? But in terms of like 
having an like Who's Abby Wambach like, is the playing. best women's player in yeah. history, and she also happens to be gay. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. there's not there's nothing like that in men's sports. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think that the like women's sports as political thing is really interesting because I think what I hear a lot about men's sports from men is that you know they can like sports is just pure entertainment and it's like a break from their everyday lives. And what I hear from women is like, I don't get a break from my everyday life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the issues that follow me in the workplace, the issues that follow me walking down the street, the issues that follow me, you know, wherever I go, like are still very much present in how sports are covered, how women's sports are covered, how I'm treated as a sports fan, especially if I'm a vocal sports fan. Yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, it's even reflected within the sport itself. Thanks to like equal pay for equal, for equal play and things of that nature. So yeah, there's not much of an escape from the real world (laughs) in women's sports. But I appreciate that women's sports like embrace that rather Mm -hmm. than run away from it. All right. Well, Meg, thank you very much for coming on the show. I have really enjoyed this conversation. As I say to all of my guests, good game, Meg. (laughs) Good game to you. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Meg for joining the show. A quick housekeeping note, the show is taking a summer break as I'm going on vacation, but we will be back in late August, early September. But don't worry, because as I'm sure you all know by now, you can follow us on Twitter at NYBF Sports, give us a like on Facebook, Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show, shoot us an email, nybfsports at gmail.com, or check out the website, nybfsports.com. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter because those will keep coming even when there aren't new episodes, so you will still get your fix of the best sports stories around. All right, I hope everyone has a good couple of weeks. I'll see you back later this summer, and as always, good game, listeners. Bye.